Hey everybody, Doug here. Before we get started with the show, I want to tell you about a new book that Peter and I have published called From the Earth to the Moon, the miniseries Companion. If you love space and space exploration and movies and television shows about space and space exploration, this is for you. If you think you've read it all and know everything there is to know about the moon flights, we want you to think again. Uh, in 1998, the landmark TV series, From the Earth to the Moon, aired on HBO in 12 episodes, told the daring story of NASA's Project Apollo to put humans on the moon. Our book provides a comprehensive and detailed analysis of each episode of the miniseries and covers Apollo from start to finish and then some. It's more than a simple episode guide. Our companion reevaluates the entire Apollo program, both within and outside the context of the HBO series. We review the choices that the filmmakers made regarding the actors, special effects, and historical accuracy in every episode. We show what they got right, what they got wrong, and what they didn't tell you about each of the historic moon flights. Um, we cover all manned Apollo missions, the creation of the lunar module, the Apollo 1 fire and its aftermath, the personal and professional highs and lows of the astronauts, and lots of key NASA personnel. As an added bonus, the book includes an in-depth interview that I did with Andrew Chaikin, author of A Man on the Moon, the book that was the basis for the entire miniseries. It also includes 35 great images, many of which I can guarantee you've never seen before. Um, you can buy the book on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or any of the book reader platforms. Uh, again, uh, we hope you check it out, and uh, on to the show. Thanks. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. In God's speed, John Glenn. Okay, everybody, welcome to our initial episode of the Right Stuff Companion. Uh, my co-host is Peter, and I am Doug. Uh, we are podcast veterans. Uh, Peter and I have done podcasts on movies, uh, The Mandalorian, Mind Hunter, uh, and From the Earth to the Moon, among uh, others. Um, and this is, uh, again, this is our initial episode of the Right Stuff Companion. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, this is an, it's an interesting show to kind of make in 2020. You know, it's not a very, just to put it bluntly, it's not a very patriotic time that we live in. And, uh, you know, the space race is sort of, uh, I think, pretty strongly tied to the height of American patriotism. So it's a little bit of an interesting show, uh, I think, for for uh, for Disney of all networks, Disney, yeah. to to invest in. Why they choose to make it now, I guess, is interesting. You know, they I I guess that they optioned or National Geographic or whatever optioned the book like a few years ago, and then somebody at Disney decided to make this now. So part of it is right. There's a lot of attention about the 50th anniversary of the of the Apollo 11 moon landing and you know when this when they were going through um, the initial stages at least of making this um, and so there was renewed interest I guess but maybe there's sort of a there's a that hole about about patriotism and about achievement sort of met group achievement at a very high level that the space program reflects uh, maybe there's a little nostalgia for that. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, it's interesting because it's not a very patriotic presentation. And we'll get into this when we do our deep dive. But, you know, like it's not a very raw, raw take on uh, Project Mercury. 
You know, it's almost it's almost Mad Men-ish. Yeah, you know, that's what I was going to say. It's a lot like Mad Men. As a matter of fact, it's almost... It's like 80% similar to Mad Men to With me. With Al Shepard in the Don Draper role. Right. Well, they kind of spread it out. But yeah, right. He's the sort of the figurehead, so to speak. But it is... Um, it's interesting that that you know you have to choose how you're going to make the focus when you're when you're making a series, right? Or or what what are the what are the underpinnings? What's the theme of the series, right? And and they chose like Mad Men did um, sociological sort of big themes about society and personal themes that are about you know personal sexuality and things like that. And those are really the main kind of themes of the show that are basically very similar to Mad Men. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Uh, almost, almost, well, I shouldn't say to the sort of like, it's not eclipsing, but like rivaling the flying elements. And I guess, you know, this ended up on Disney because National Geographic Media, I believe, is owned by Disney Publishing Worldwide. That's how this is on the Disney Channel or Disney Plus, shall we say. I thought Disney just owns everything. <laughs> That's it's just like by default. Um, uh, and, and we're going to go through this, you know. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the right stuff is a 1979 book by Tom Wolfe, which is actually based on a four-article series that Tom Wolfe wrote for Rolling Stone that was famously made into a movie by Philip Kaufman, I believe, in 1983, right? And then, for example, I think when you and I were growing up, you know, the right stuff occupied a very, very large place in the cultural landscape and the way that it depicted astronauts, pilots flying um, in general. Yeah, and, it, the, you know, we'll get into that, but it's very, very different. Like the, the central kind of thesis and themes in the book and then mostly in the movie also, which follows the book clo more closely, um, are totally different than the themes of this show. Right. And there's, and, and you know, I think, you know, I imagine that they probably felt sort of in the way that, uh, way, the way that from the earth to the moon, uh, the HBO miniseries that we've covered in a different podcast and a book um, that you can buy on Amazon, shameless plug. Um, you know, they had to steer clear of Apollo 13, which came before them. So they had to do Apollo 13 in an extremely different way. And I imagine that the show creators here, by the way, Leonardo DiCaprio was one of the producers of this series. Right. You know, they, I, you know, they almost, it almost looks like they said, like, how can we do this as differently from the movie as humanly possible? Um, to to the, the point, to me, that's the most glaring and and I honestly think maybe a mistake is the complete omission of Chuck Yeager. <laughs> That's what Who, I was going to bring up. Where's Chuck Yeager? Yeah, because he and his his absence is palpable. I mean, abs Yeager is, you know, he is the emotional center of both the book and the movie. Uh, the he explains movie. the right stuff. Right. Jaeger he, is the right he stuff. He is, right? right? He is the living, walking embodiment of the right stuff. And and the, the, the producers of this show and the writers, they have made the, I think you could say, questionable decision to leave Jaeger out. Jaeger, by the way, is still alive. As of the time of this podcast, Chuck Jaeger is still alive. Yeah, and it's interesting because Right, a lot. Most of the astronauts are not. 
Right. It's um, almost. I, I believe that all of the Mercury astronauts are dead. I'm, and, I, have, and, I could double check that, but I am pretty sure the Mercury astronauts are all dead. Yeah, it's interesting because Jaeger was sort of the paternal figure to all of them. Uh, and, well, I mean, he knew them. I, I mean, you know, there's a lot you could say about Chuck Yeager. And, uh, you know, he wasn't often described in paternal terms. Let's just put it no, that way. No, no. But no, but I mean, added, you know, they absorbed oh, yeah. what, the fame and the achievement that Chuck Yeager did. And right. they absorbed the attitude, right? And the ethos. The, what, right. The, what the right stuff was, which is a certain blend of machismo, technical capability, um, right, and you know, a, and a, a sort of a, a pilot ethos, right? That not, he embodied. Not, and not all of these guys were at Edwards, but the ones who were at Edwards among the Mercury astronauts were there in the fifties, and Jaeger was there in the forties, before it was even Edwards Air Force Base when it was Muroc Airfield out in the high desert of California. So right. it's true, like he's, yeah, I mean, he's sort of like the the granddaddy of all pilots. I mean, you know, he was he probably was and remains the most famous pilot of the twentieth century, Chuck Yeager. Probably the only person who could rival. Jaeger in terms of pilot fame, at least in the West, Charles Lindbergh. I guess on the Red Baron. That's it. Yeah. Right? Well, the, but, probably the three most famous pilots, right, of the 20th century. However, and I think this is, I think there are two reasons why they left Chuck Yeager out. One is, if you go around and ask people, they probably, most people don't know who Chuck Yeager is or probably even know his name um, at this point. And two is it doesn't sit with their the themes that they chose to emphasize. It doesn't it has nothing to do with Mad Men. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so by think, the way, you know, they ninety seven years old. Ninety seven. He's probably still flying at Mach One. <laughs> My favorite story about Chuck Yeager is when the Right Stuff movie obviously focuses very, very much on uh Yeager breaking the sound barrier in the X one. And I remember I saw the movie with my dad and and uh when you know when Jaeger breaks the sound barrier it is initially conveyed in the in the Kaufman film that he has died and there's a long like 60 second pause where you're left to think he died and I said to my dad did he die and my dad said he's selling AC Delco batteries on TV <laughs> these days great answer <laughs> and I was like uh <laughs> so my dad ruined the surprise that Jaeger was still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Only for a second, though. Right, but it was a funny moment that I still remember. <laughs> um, the other thing about this this show is it's not very nostalgic. No. You know, like you know, you would expect some nostalgia from the show, and they don't kind of go there. No, they play it um, sort of as a, a modern, you know, drama. Yeah, in the it's way it's very that, unvarnished. Yes, yeah, and the first episode in particular. I mean, dry as a bone. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, I think a little bit to its to its detriment. Yeah, it's not exactly moving right along, is it? No, it's interesting. I think, now. Uh, I think the first episode. Uh, you know, you know, it, it, when you think about the first episode, it sets the tone, and it, it, it's their chance to grab the viewer. And, and for example. You know, you think about From the Earth to the Moon, which is a, the first episode, Can We Do This, is a whirlwind where they do all of Mercury and all of Gemini, not Gemini, Gemini, in one hour. And it's just, it's just 
great set pieces and soaring score and, you know, a huge finish with uh, Gemini 12. And they don't do that here. Like they start off with a, a very, very different first episode, much more of a slow burn, which I wonder if it hurt them. Like the people watch that first episode and were like, what a snoozer, you know, and yeah. then just went back to watching baby Yoda. I bet it did hurt them. Um, and I think, I, I think actually that I didn't like the first episode of From the Earth to the Moon as much as you did. I mean, although it's, it's in my opinion, significantly better than this one. Um, as a for as first episodes go, but I think you're right. I think that you know if you're look if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're going to watch the second episode, right? But if you haven't, I would because it's 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 worth it. It's it's a lot a lot more interesting. Yeah. So should, let's let's jump into the deep dive. Yeah. Um, so we begin right. We begin with a cold open. It is it is sometime in the middle of the night before Al Shepard's freedom seven flight um and shepherd and glenn are literally out on a jog in the dark you know literally and metaphorically racing to be the first astronaut showing from the get-go how competitive the two men are with each other uh, now we yeah. know obviously that al shepherd is the first american in space not the first person in space right obviously that that honor goes to yuri gagarin but shepherd right. is the first american in space Right, um, and at that, right, it's a parabolic flight, and the Russians had already orbited. Right, so, right. You know, Gagarin does one orbit, whereas right. uh, uh, Shepard, like like Gus Grissom after him, uh, will just do a suborbital lob, as they call it. Yes, they, they go up just into technically what's space, but they don't have enough velocity to get into orbit and circle the globe. So they, right. they go up, and then they come back right down in a, in a parabola. Right, and it's the difference between, for example, the Mercury-Redstone... Right, that uh, Shepard and Grissom fly, and a Mercury Atlas. Right, right, that that's which is later bigger, Mercury, right, and or has a more fuel and more, right, or a Vostok right. rocket like a like an R seven ICBM, like Gagarin flies. Right, because um, they they had more fuel, more acceleration, and can achieve more speed, so they can achieve enough speed of the capsule to blast it into an orbital velocity where it'll stay up and circle the planet. And you know, in all fairness to the Soviets. The, the Soviets uh, with Vostok 1 and the R-7, they did have better heavy lifting capability than we had in the late 50s and early 1960s, which is why Gagarin's flight is orbital, because they knew they, the, basically the Soviets knew they could do it, and we weren't, we couldn't at that time. And the right. Atlas was very, very troubled early in its development, although ironically, it's gone on to become one of the most reliable launch vehicles in the history of the world. Um, I do like that they show uh, Shepard and Glenn uh, eating the traditional breakfast of steak and eggs, right? They, they, they gave the astronauts specifically steak and eggs because it was extremely low revenue, so they wouldn't have to take a crap uh, while they were on the pad or during the flight. That's the actual reason that the astronauts eat steak and eggs. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting, too, that this episode and others sort of uh, focus on Glenn jogging because Glenn very, very famously uh, ran two miles a day uh, because he knew he had a tendency to gain weight. And if you look at Glenn compared to the other astronauts in historic photos, he is stocky. Like a lot of yeah. the other guys were, were really thin. And as a general rule, military pilots are small people. Because right. the cockpits were small and the smaller, thinner people did better. Like jockeys. Right, and Glenn struggled with his weight. So that's why Glenn was such a runner. 
and again, they're they're playing it here as you know who's going to be the first man, right? They're they're not giving the astronauts name out to the press, uh, but they you know they cut uh, before they go to the credits. Glenn and Shepard have a really tense altercation. Yeah, right? yeah. At breakfast, where yeah, basically Shepard says, you know, don't BS me, just leave me alone. Right, and I know that you tried to undercut me to get this flight. Right. And and we're going to go out there and we're going to smile in front of the press. But don't ever forget that I don't like you. Right. Right. It's an interesting again, like, honestly, I'm not the director of the show. If I was a director of the show, I would have had the opening scene be the launch of Freedom 7. And then you go back. But, you know, they made the opening this really unpleasant exchange between essentially the two main male protagonists of the show. Yeah. You know, this, I mean, this might have been, this may as well have been a, a board meeting at Sterling Cooper Draper Price, right? On that end <laughs> for the way that it's portrayed. Um, right. They're trying to create, you know, tension among the astronauts, right? Yeah. Well, and they create tension among the viewers. Yeah. Um, the opening credits, I was really dismayed uh, to note, has no music. And again, one of the things that I, I think about is inseparable from the Right Stuff movie is Phil Conti's. You can only call it soaring score. I'm not not trying to be punny there, but like the score of the right stuff is incredible. You know, yeah. like what an opportunity for music, and and they don't do it here. They right. just it's a cold uh, like the credits. It's just it's a black screen with the lettering of the right stuff using by the way the same font that the 1983 movie used and the and the the book used. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and then right, it just goes right, right the back title. to the show. Yeah, yeah. It just goes right back to the show. Interesting. Um, and we, we, we go back in time from, from, uh, May 5th, 1961, I believe to 1959. And we meet Gordo Cooper, who in a drunken stupor has fallen through a glass coffee table and lacerated his hand. Right. The hard um, drinking. Yeah. Right. And, and not so uh, happy. Right, and it's a very, very different portrayal than, for example, Dennis Quaid's breezy uh, Gordon Cooper, right, from the 83 film. Yeah, he's kind of, at least in the first couple episodes, he's the sort of one of the other main, you know, they have to sort of pick certain astronauts to focus on at different episodes, Correct. right? So so you, Cooper's the other, he's the third guy they focus on. Actually, he may be more like first or second, uh, he gets a lot. There, a lot of the, his yeah, story he's is kind of second banana behind Glenn and right. Shepard. But he's still, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of attention about his story and his family life. Right, right, and his his relationship with his wife Trudy. Right, um, and then uh, he's. We discover that uh, that Gordo is uh, stationed at Edwards, uh, and he's flying the 104. Uh, and one, so this is supposed to be 59. 104 is introduced into service at 58. So they're right on that. And then we see uh, an event where Gordo and uh, his uh, his wingman or wingmate, uh, Cal Cunningham, are flying in 104s. And they decide to basically, you know, um, you know, flat hat it and screw around. Yeah, hot and, it end, and it ends up with uh, Cal Cunningham. Uh, going into a flat spin, hitting his head on the canopy. The, by the way, uh, uh, exactly like a scene in The Right Stuff where Jaeger hits his head on the canopy and breaks it in the X-1A. Right. Um, 
and uh, and dies. And just so we're clear, Cal Cunningham is not a real person. That's a yeah. fictional scene. Um, but somehow, somehow we're meant to con- or take away from this scene, and I wasn't quite sure how that somehow Cooper is responsible for Cal Cunningham's death, right? Like Cooper has a lot of guilt about this, but I wasn't really sure how or why. Especially because in the, you know, Cunningham is sort of the one that decides the hot dog. Like it didn't, I didn't follow. I didn't follow actually. And and Cooper is in the wingman slot on the flight. You know, it's not like he was like, all right, Cal, you do it. Yeah. Well, maybe he's not so much guilty as he is. It's, he was close with the guy and he thinks about the risk that, you know, it implies it, it basically brings home the risk of his job and the fact that he's got kids and, you know, maybe it's not worth it. He's, he starts to maybe have a change of heart about being a test pilot. So maybe it's less guilt than, I mean, it, it does seem to be guilt. I agree with you, but yeah. you know, maybe you can give him it's, it's more like his realization of statistics. And yeah, that they're little, not so good on his muddled. favor. Yeah, a little muddled, muddled there. You know, the the F-104 scene where Cal and uh, Gordo have their misadventure is obviously all CGI, which is, you know, again, this is 2020. We're going to be bathed in CGI here. But the right stuff uh, very, very famously made extensive use of model work. Uh, and the model work and the right stuff uh, looks really, really good and holds up well to this day because it's actual you know, objects, um, you know, objects being lit in real light. I think Gary Gutierrez did the effects for it um, in The Right Stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, if you watch The Right Stuff to this day, it just looks, it looks incredible. It just looks incredible. And it won, it won, um, the original Right Stuff won four Academy Awards, sound effects, film editing, original score by Conti, and sound. It didn't win for uh, best effects, although maybe it should have. Maybe it should have. <clears throat> um, anyway, so back to back to the miniseries. Um, uh, we then meet a very, very young Glenn Lunny, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is working with the Space Task Group. He's just referred to as Lunny. And then he's working with Bob, who must be, and we discover later on, is in fact Bob Gilruth, right? These are all very, very seminal people in the history of NASA. Uh, and it's supposed to be, you know, this and is NASA. Chris Craft is the other one, right? Right, Chris Craft. I think we see a little later on in this episode and much more in the, uh, in the, in the second episode. Uh, but, you know, Glenn Lunny goes on to become one of the very, very first flight directors working under Chris Kraft. And, you know, Lunny is portrayed here as a bit of a doofus, but he absolutely was not in any way, shape or form a doofus. And NASA worked with uh, Mercury, sorry, with NASA all the way from Mercury through the shuttle era. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here he's kind of portrayed as like a wet behind the ears kid. He's like 12. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's as old as we were when we saw the right stuff yeah. pretty much um and you know they're working basically in a in an empty sort of hangar type office trying to figure out you know who should weigh who should they you know look at to be the first group of american astronauts uh and for example you know right away uh, they're interested in test pilots based on Eisenhower's recommendation. And, uh, you know, Glenn comes to their attention. They're, they're worried that Glenn is too old. Glenn, for example, is 38. By the way, 
Neil Armstrong, for context, is 38 when he walks on the moon 12, you know, 11, a decade after this, right? 11, 12 right. years after this starts, you know, and Glenn is already 38 and he hasn't even right. flown in space yet. Right. Glenn is sort of reaching towards the end of his pilot career. Right. Um, and then he's, you know, he's been famous in American culture for a decade yeah. already. Um, uh, we, we cut to Cal's funeral with the obligatory missing man formation. Uh, de rigueur for any show about flying. Um, and then there's a scene that I find very, very hard to believe where Gordo asks to transfer to fly transports. It's almost inconceivable to me that that happened in real life. And if it did, someone please let us know. Uh, it's just very, very hard for me to believe. I read Gordo's book. And I, again, if he says he asked for transfer to transports, I certainly don't remember it in Gordo's book. Yeah, it's a little muddy. I wonder if it's, they cut some other stuff out. And they ended up like, I wonder if they had justification. They maybe went a little more into Cooper and the accident and what was going on at the beginning of the show. And they, they slimmed it down. And this is what they ended up with. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe. Um, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I made a note in my, uh, in my, you know, scribblings while I was watching this that, you know, what else is missing besides Chuck Yeager and music from this series Beamons? It's humor. What'd you say? Beamons. Beamons, right. Beamons <laughs> chewing gum. <laughs> hey, Peter, you got any Beamons? Um, <laughs> but there's there's no humor at all. Like, it's it's dead, dead serious. And these pilots were known for a lot of, you know, screwing around and, you know, comedy. Yeah, it doesn't uh, in creep in until the second episode you know? where there's some... Yeah, but I mean, this this whole first episode, you know, there's not a smile to be had. Yeah, it's bone dry. Um, um, and then we start to see, right, the space task group is getting underway, right? They're inviting people to be, to, to apply, right, to yeah. be Mercury astronauts, right? We see Glenn get his letter, Cooper get his letter, his letter um, and they're invited to a secret airman briefing on February 9th, 1959 at the Chamberlain Hotel where they're in, in, in Indiana, where they're told uh, to check in under the name of Bill Baker. None of this happened. Um, and this is a, sort of a rewriting of, of the, the astronauts being invited uh, to a hotel uh, in Texas, I believe, where they all had to check in under the name of Max Peck, who was the hotel manager. Right. So again, like they've, like, I don't know why you would bother to change Changing that. that. Yeah, it doesn't make like, any what, sense. What's the, what? You know? I think it's the Rice Hotel. It's the Rice Hotel where they go in real life. Right. Um, and then, you know, Shepard is pissed that he's not invited, right? Wally Shiraz invited. By the way, Wally Shiraz, to make an unbelievable Mad Men connection, Wally Shiraz is played by none other than Aaron Staten, who is Ken Cosgrove on Mad Men. <laughs> I mean, that guy, that guy, you know, he didn't even need to change a wardrobe to show up for this series. <laughs> um and then, by the way, it's interesting, Wally here is portrayed in a much more sort of friendlier way than he's portrayed in From the Earth to the Moon, where, you know, he's kind of portrayed as a dick. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, so we find out that um, Shepard's invite came in and he missed it because his, his office mate didn't give it to him on time. Was that true? Um, 
I don't know. I don't know. And I've read Shepard's book. I don't remember it being described. I don't remember that that either. There's a lot of dramatic license in here. By the way, Wally is uh, Wally is barely in the right stuff movie. He has a bigger role in From the Earth to the Moon. Right. Um, He's played by Mark Harmon in From the Earth to the Moon. Uh, But here, like, he's at least a he's kind of like a sea level character, but he's a little bit he's got a little bit something. And then uh, we see Shepard arrive late in the midst of a lecture by Chris, who is we discover Chris Kraft. And he is told that uh, Chris Kraft was the original flight director for NASA. Um, And that we are told that seven pilots will be chosen out of a very, very large group, about 150 people. and uh, the other astronauts we are we learn are basically most wary of Glenn and Shepard. Like they're from the very very first moments of the jockeying for position, uh, they are the two astronauts. So the two pilots that everybody is worried about and watching as they go through the astronaut selection. Right, and then no one. They basically tell them, you know, look, sign. Don't you don't have to. This is volunteer, and most of them, you know, there's like a hundred guys. Very very few of them don't apply officially so then the ones that uh you know there's like a hundred guys that get sent to get medical testing mm-hmm. right at the at the lovelace clinic right well in actually what they do is they winnow them down to like uh 36 or something like that from the initial group Mexico, right so right. they on paper um they they winnow down about 100 guys to 36, and they send them all to get a repeated animus. Yeah, actually, I think it's 108 to 32, to be precise. I wrote down in my notes what they were saying. Um, And, uh, you know, Glenn and uh, Glenn is really sharply contrasted with Shepard. Glenn doesn't drink. He doesn't uh, womanize, right? Right. He's mocked for drinking a seltzer uh, at a mixer where every single other person is drinking liquor. Um, and we see, for example, Glenn catches Shepard literally taking a woman to his room. Yeah. And and Shepard doesn't give a shit. He's like, no. yeah, I'm taking this girl to my room. I'll see you in the morning, John. You know, like, yep. and it's understood that they all know that they're married. Uh, marriage comes up in a serious way because uh, part of the astronaut selection is they want to meet the astronaut. Sorry, the pilot's families. I got to stop saying astronaut when I mean pilot. They meet the pilot's families. And uh, Gordo and his wife, Trudy, also a, who's also a pilot in her own right, um, they uh, they have separated. And she has taken the two girls and left. Yeah. And he has to basically run to her and basically say, like, will you engage in this fiction that we have a happy marriage so that I can potentially get this astronaut gig. And he kind of, the, the, the carrot he dangles in front of her is like, we, it could be a, a new beginning for our marriage and we could get back together. And she, you know, for whatever reasons, she she buys it. She's skeptical of his new beginning thing too, but she she's just sort of painted as a very reasonable character. Yeah, and, and, and uh, sort of sort of pained and and you know, like like you, you get the sense that being married to Gordon Cooper is not the greatest gig. Yeah, they sort of imply that she left because he's a womanizer and a drinker. Right, and I think more of the former than the latter. This is the 50s, I imagine. There was a lot more tolerance for drinking. Um, You know, and, and, you know, he's gone and she's gone and taken their kids and, you know, he's living alone in some apartment. Um, So, but but he he succeeds and uh, he's able to talk her into it and they basically lie to NASA uh, about how great their home life is. Yeah. 
Um, and it works. We have, yeah. And we're, we're treated to some, we're treated to some, uh, very, very, uh, de rigueur scenes at the Lovelace clinic of them having tests uh, up to, and including the rectal balloon scene, which is done to a much more humorous effect in the right stuff movie. Yeah. One of the um, great, one of the great parts of the right stuff, yeah. um, which and, by uh, the way, includes a ton of humor. This being yeah, exactly. One of them. I mean, this thing is played out so humorlessly, but the right stuff is very memorable scene where they have to go like down two flights of stairs and walk like a mile and a half with a, with an, an inflated enema. And <laughs> and these guys who are like the toughest guys in the world are just miserably suffering. Right. And um, there's a there's a funny racial aspect to the scene because they're taken down by a Hispanic aide who yeah. gives Shepard a hard time about his Latino impressions, right? Of, yeah. Jose, of, of, of the fall astronaut Jose Jimenez. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, none yeah. of that's here. Just poof out the window. You know, honestly, they would have been better off just to skip that whole scene, you yeah. know, and show them in show them in other sorts of situations. But you know, again, like if you're gonna do that scene, you know, if you're gonna go back to the well and do it the way the movie did it, like, like try to do it better. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And they didn't do that. And then uh, I don't know, a lost opportunity. Um, we then see um, Shepard having a very, very hostile interaction with the shrink, where he essentially says, "I'm not going to play ball, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to go along with your psychiatric eval, and and don't think you're going to get into my head." To which the psychiatrist says to him, "You're probably going to be chosen anyway, right? But you're going to get in trouble eventually because you're not honest with yourself." That's what he tells him. Right? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I actually forgot about that line, but that, yeah. honestly, that's probably the best line in the scene. It's actually um, probably the best moment in the moment in that whole series. I mean, sorry, the whole first episode in many ways, because right. it's honest. It's honest. And it's, you know, if they want to focus on the astronauts' personality foibles, which they clearly do, right, in this series, then at least addressing the personality foibles in such a direct way and in a way that's uh, from the outside as well as from the inside, right? From from another professional's opinion is is much more interesting. Yeah, right, exactly. And that guy, you know, in a brief meeting with Shepard, sees him for who he really is. You know, yeah, even with Shepard having all of his barriers up. Yeah, right? that guy that guy sharp. penetrates him very easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we finish with uh, the astronauts getting phone calls and being invited to join NASA. Right? We see Al, Carpenter, Gus, Deke, etc. Um, and then we, we close on the famous, the famous ceremony that Bob Gilruth runs where the, the Mercury 7 astronauts are introduced to the press. And we literally see Shepard eyeing Glenn sidelong. And, and Glenn is placed right in the middle right of the seven. Right, an odd number. Somebody's got to be in the middle, and there is Glenn, right in the middle for the press to basically devour. Yeah, and Glenn's so good at it. He is. He is. He's the he's most comfortable in the camera. Yeah, and polished, and he, you know, he's able to sort of, as they call it in the book, you know, he's Eddie Attaboy. Yeah, <laughs> Dudley Do Right. <laughs> yep. Uh, and that's how our first episode ends. Um, I don't know. You know, uh, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I was looking forward to this when I heard that they were making it. I was really looking forward to the series. And I actually, um, I actually, you know, like it's it's part of why I got uh, Disney Plus 
hmm. uh, access uh, was to was to see this show. Um, that and the Mandalorian, truth be told. Um, uh, but uh, you know, when this first episode ended, I was really left kind of scratching my head. Like a lot of choices that they made were. I, I'm not going to lie, unconventional and unexpected. You know, they took this in a very different direction. And I say that as somebody, you know, who, who, you know, as a kid growing up in the 70s, you know, like could not have been more enamored with the Mercury 7, you know, two decades later. Yeah. Uh, this was a really atypical way to portray things. You know, uh, in all, I guess in all fairness to the filmmaker's defense, you know, uh, John Glenn... Most of the Mercury astronauts in general, but John Glenn especially, was very, very critical of the Right Stuff book and the movie. Uh, John Glenn very famously hated the movie, mm. which many felt portrayed him in a very positive light. But he hated the movie, and he said it made them look like clowns. And he said uh, many times publicly that you know this was deadly serious business, and we knew that we were you know risking our lives and our careers, and we were going up against the Soviets and you know, Phil Kaufman should not have portrayed us that way. And it wasn't funny and it wasn't fun. And, you know, maybe Glenn is dead now. Maybe Glenn would have liked this present or representation of things. Yeah. Well, you can only wonder, but I mean, look, they made decisions about what to talk about and, or what to focus on, right. in this series and this, they, they're not, they're not interested in sort of this a, a, a presentation that's funny and that's based that's that talks about machismo or about really what the right stuff is, quote unquote, right? They, yeah, no, not at all. And and so they've this is a very, this is a, you know what honestly this episode is very married to toxic masculinity as a concept. Yeah, and Which didn't exist in 1959, by the way. Right, right, but you know, but you could do that. Right, you can you can put that in context, but it's like, to, in my opinion, leaving out the whole concept of the right stuff and what that is, is is sort of a mistake because you don't have, um, you know, you're not you're not really um, owing you're not you're not explaining what the motivation of the pilots was and therefore the way the public the interaction between the way the public saw them and the space program and the way that they actually saw their own pursuit through this. Right. And, you know, there's really none of that, even though maybe Glenn didn't agree with that. Um, you know, Glenn was an insider and both can be true. You know what Glenn said about the fact that they were earnest. You can be both earnest and also a pilot whose primary motivation is the right stuff. I mean, you can have both things as, as motivation. Um, and I, I, they did, they just left it out in this and because they left it out, all these other things that we mentioned are missing. Mm. Well, it makes me think of the scene towards the end of the film where, where Gordo Cooper almost says the words, the right stuff. Like he literally stops short of just saying the words, but he's talking about it. And, you know, uh, he realizes that the epitome of it is not him, but it's Jaeger, you know, and he's describing, yeah. you know, he, he's, he's talking about, uh, 
sort of the best pilots he ever saw. I mean, he realizes that he's actually talking about Jaeger and then he has to, he has to stop himself because he doesn't want to give that away to the press. Uh, and again, you know, it's a great scene because the whole movie dances around this concept and doesn't actually spell it out. And then Cooper actually spells it at the end of the movie, but stops short of saying, you know, all three words, the right stuff. Whereas, right. Yeah, whereas here, you know, there's none of that. So the actual phrase, the right stuff comes from uh, Tom Wolfe's, uh, interviews that are reportedly with one of the Mercury Seven who went unnamed, and it's unclear if if those interviews ever really happened. But but that but that's where that term comes from. Hmm. Um, but you know, looking back now, it makes you wonder who Wolf was really talking to, and if that's all just a fiction. You know, maybe that maybe that's all invented by Wolf. You know, that's his impressions of pilots and flying. You know, I mean, that he wrote down and, and then Pilot sort of imbibed that after the fact. There's nothing wrong with, with him presenting his own theory of things. It doesn't have to come from interviews with, with Pilot. No, no, no. But I believe that he said, it, he said it came from a Mercury astronaut. Right. But that, so, right. Yeah. The original interviews, the original four article series at, at Wolf did are very, very hard to find now. Uh, I don't believe that they are online unless they've been recently put back up for the miniseries. But I've looked for them a couple times in the last few years and they're, they're not online and they're not for free in the Rolling Stone archive. You can buy them on eBay, believe it or not. Like you can buy the, the issues of Rolling Stone where they're published as a bundle on eBay. But the actual four articles are hard to find. Hmm. I know an interesting start for this show. I mean, um, you know, they, 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 they pick it up a little bit in episode two. They do. Um, uh, as the series sort of starts to get its feet under it. Uh, I, again, this is, uh, an, I thought, an interesting start for the show, and I'm being a little charitable there. Yeah. Well, we'll see with the next episode, and we'll talk about that. All right. Uh, let's sign off there. Uh, we will be back uh, for episode two, so please join us uh, again for the Right Stuff Companion episode two. Uh, Doug and Peter, signing off.